Well, we come to the end of 2019. What a crazy year for security this has been. Uh, no, I know I look like Steve Gibson. I'm, <laughs> this is Leo Laporte. Steve Gibson is here. We're going to look back at the year 2019 with our best of show right after this. Security now comes to you from the LastPass Studios in Petaluma, California. Securing every access point in your company doesn't have to be a challenge. LastPass unifies access and authentication to make securing your employees simple and secure. Check out lastpass.com slash twit to learn more. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Security Now, episode 747 for New Year's Eve, Tuesday, December 31st, 2019. The year's best. I think you could probably say that the year 2019 was the year ransomware got even bigger. We'll probably say the same thing for the next five years running. But there was a lot to talk about in 2019, including, <laughs> and you, this may have happened to you, Steve Gibson explains why your printer keeps printing out advertisements for PewDiePie. And believe it or not, Leo, on this first cast <laughs> of the new year, we're going to talk about, yes, PewDiePie. Oh, PewDiePie. This time, Chromecast users have had PewDiePie-pushing video content interrupting their viewing whoa if you can believe it or not wow. get a look yes on reddit someone posted tv randomly switching to some pewdiepie video he, he posted every 20 minutes or so my tv switches to some crappy youtube video about pewdiepie with and he said rap music and a pound Chromecast hack hashtag. That's not anyone know at all. <laughs> <laughs> anyone know how to stop this? It's driving me bonkers. Now, Google's wow. response to this from the from Grace from Google, the Google community manager, uh, Grace wrote, Hi, everybody. We know how frightening this is. The good news is your Chromecast hasn't actually been hacked, in quotes. Rather, somebody was able to cast to your Chromecast due to an opening in your home network. Oh, yeah, that's a great comfort. This is the result of your router making some smart devices, including Chromecast, publicly reachable. No, actually, it's a consequence of Chromecast telling your router that has universal plug-and-play enabled that it would like some ports mapped to it, pretty please. Okay, so it is both. You know, it is universal plug-and-play. How many times must, must we say? You know, the, 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 I, I will say that the instant it appeared on this podcast, we said, turn it off. <laughs> this is really bad. Turn it off. And we know that Xbox people... Where that was a, a hardship for them because, you know, arguably this was created so that Xbox would be able to have ports mapped into it. So anyway, what we have is the return of Hacker Giraffe. Remember that twice now, Leo, once while you were gone, then the second time, that you, for you, the first mention on this podcast of PewDiePie 
was his second hack of a greater number of printers, which are exposed on the internet, all sending out the what? What? what there was like the number two YouTuber was some. Yeah, some it's a it's a Israeli Indian, or Indian uh, yeah, channel, some, Tea Power yeah. or something. Yeah, that's that's starting and all to beat doing PewDiePie is, and right, right, yeah. right. Okay, it worked so, by the way. I think PewDiePie has T series has has yep, seeded its lead to PewDiePie. That's what it was. It was yeah. T series. Yeah. So anyway, on on the fact for the hackergiraffe.com uh they ask themselves what's going on if you came here because you're a victim of cast hack then know that your chromecast slash smart tv slash google home is exposed to the public internet and is leaking sensitive information related to your device and home what information is leaked what Wi-Fi your Chromecast slash Google Home is connected to, the Bluetooth devices it has paired to, how long it's been on, what Wi-Fi networks your device remembers, what alarms you have set, and much more. What can hackers do with this? Remotely play media on your device, rename your device, factory reset or reboot the device, Force it to forget all Wi-Fi networks. Force it to pair to a new Bluetooth speaker or Wi-Fi point, and so on. What can't hackers do? He says, assuming that the Chromecast Google Home is the only problem you have, hackers cannot access other devices on the network or sniff information besides Wi-Fi points and Bluetooth devices. They also don't have access to your personal Google account, nor the Google Home's microphone. They do have access to the noise level in the room, however, which is interesting. Then the, uh, the FAQ that they wrote for themselves asks themselves, who are you? Your friendly neighborhood hacker giraffe. We just want to have a bit of fun while, uh -huh, while educating and protecting people, of course, this is breaking the law, but what the heck, and protecting people from open devices on the, net, on the Internet. We were also behind the printer hack and printer hack 2. Why are you doing this? We want to help you. And also our favorite YouTubers, mostly PewDiePie. We're only trying to protect you and inform you of this before someone takes real advantage of it. Imagine the consequences of having access to the information above. What do you want? Well, fix your device. And also, subscribe to PewDiePie <laughs> on YouTube. Also, Pyrocynical, Dolan Dark, and, and Grande. G-R-A, I'm, I'm not going to... This is why you're never going never gonna <laughs> to succeed on YouTube. You've got to be able to read these. Wow. <laughs> Don't forget good old Keemstar. Keemstar. Okay. How do I fix my device? He says, disable UPnP on your router. And if your port forwarding forwarding, if your if your port forwarding ports 8008, 8443, 8009, then stop forwarding them. Will your Chromecast stop working if you do that? No. Okay. Uh Thank you. Any way to show support. 
Yes. I, he says, I, Hacker Giraffe, have other things to do. Oh, good. Use my free time. <laughs> go please them. go. go <laughs> yes. Use my free time teaching people cybersecurity and ethical hacking. Okay. Uh, if you want to support personally or enjoyed this hack. Oh, yeah. It was enjoyable. Consider becoming a patron on my patron page. And I, by the way, I went and it had been canceled or closed. So I don't think that worked. So, uh, okay. So if you go to the page that is listed in the, sh in the show notes, casthack.thehackergiraffe.com, you get uh, a, a, a status page. Total exposed devices, 72,341. Of those, 8,254 were renamed and 65,283, that is the balance, have been forced to play video. So more than 65,000 Chromecast or smart TV devices received this, this annoying YouTube video. Um, that, uh, that same number of 72,341 breaks down as 1,542 were Google Home devices and the remaining 67,049 were smart TVs or Chromecast devices. So anyway, Google did, Google did say that this was the fault of UPnP being enabled, <clears throat> that this grace from Google continued after blaming it on UPnP, and I don't, because this, this is Chromecast saying, open ports to me, please. She, she wrote, to make your network more secure, you can disable UPnP to avoid any unwanted content being played on your devices. How convenient. The instructions are different from router to router, so we suggest checking with the manufacturer of your particular device. However, this may affect other apps and devices that use UPnP to function, meaning Chromecast doesn't really need it, but we thought, what the heck, let's open some ports because why not? So um, what I would note, uh, uh, there, there's been coverage of this. Um, it's, as we have mentioned before, the port mapping done by the UPnP API typically is hidden from the user so as not to confuse them. Like, wait a minute, I didn't map these ports. So they don't appear in the UI. What I would recommend if, first of all, remember that GRC, the first time this it became apparent to me uh, on the podcast, Leo, that universal plug and play was being enabled externally, um, it was like, okay, wait a minute, let's check for that. So although this doesn't require an external uh, presence, but, you know, our, our Shields Up service has still has from that from that day on a quick chest test for external access that's what the bad guys are using for for proxying traffic and setting up bots and so forth and now turning around and using it to look inside people's networks so you absolutely want that disabled for external access but this is internal use and it, it is the case that as grace notes um that that there may be some things you are doing on your network uh, 
that will stop working if you disable it. <clears throat> Typically, however, it is possible to manually configure the ports to the devices that need it. The problem with having universal plug and play enabled is there's and this is what the first point we made about it when it first hit our radar was it is there is no authentication. There's no username, no password, nothing. It is wide open so that anything inside your network has access to it if it's enabled and can can do anything it wants to with your router behind your back. I mean, it's just it's unconscionably bad. It always was. And, and we keep seeing instances where it's biting people. Um, and, you know, so uh, the point is that if you disable it, you should di you should reboot your router. The universal plug and play mappings are typically dynamically made. They are not statically stored in non-volatile memory. So a reboot should flush them, but turning it off won't necessarily close these holes because it'll prevent new ones from being mapped, but probably leave the existing ones in place. And if you're going through all that, take the time to check with the, that the router's web manufacturer's website with the version number. Remember that we've seen already an instance where the router itself wasn't aware that there was a newer version. So even a router that, it, that, that is, is trying to check to see whether it should update itself may not have the latest information about what is available for its own uh, firmware. So check the manufacturer, um, always update to the latest, uh, shut down universal plug, and play, universal plug and play if you believe you can, and then do a, a reboot in any event so that you have, if you're trying to close things down, you have a chance of doing so. And don't and, forget to subscribe to Pyrocynical, Dolan Dark, and, and Grand Day. That's right. Get, get props to PewDiePie. And good old Keemstar. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, also... Um, uh, Ooh. Sorry, I threw you. I apologize. I did. I, I had one last. By the way, PewDiePie one. is beating, but it's T series, but it's really close as of seconds ago. Wow. Yeah, Pew, it, PewDiePie has uh, um, about four hundred thousand more subscribers. He's got eighty million subscribers. By the way, it's it's amazing the number. Although probably those aren't real people, or maybe they are. I don't know how it works. Yeah. Yeah, he's got he if you if you really care, he's got eighty thousand two hundred twenty four eighty million two hundred twenty four thousand three hundred sixty eight subscribers to T series seventy nine million four hundred eighty six thousand one hundred three subscribers. Wow. <laughs> I know you're glad. Now now I was just doing that to give you time to find your place. Go ahead. And I did. Thank you, Leo. <laughs> you're welcome. You see uh, you see I'm helpful. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm helping. Uh, what's annoying is that Google knows about this. They have known about this for years. Uh, there are a number of YouTube hacks from dating from 2014 showing Chromecast being commandeered, like well, play something on your neighbor's Chromecast. You, you have to be in things. physical proximity, or can you do it anywhere in the world? Any well, not at least this way. Here, you can do it anywhere wow. in the world because it's publicly open. And that's what this guy did. This hacker giraffe, to how many was it? It's 72,341 uh, devices were played of or found. Of those, more than 65,000 had been forced to play video. Jeez. 
Do you use Shodan to find that? How, how would you find that? Um, Shodan may very well, because we know that that's the tool he used to find the uh, printer exploits right. before. So he may have just said, ah, what else can I do to push PewDiePie? Because after all, it's neck and neck with with T-shirt. <laughs> That's actually T-Series, I know. T-Series. To our listeners who are, or maybe, you know, uh, well, yeah, are, are, we know we have listeners of all ages. We have people who say, hey, how do I get started in security? I, I want to, you know, I want to consider a career. What do I do? Or maybe you've got some free time. Maybe you're living with your folks or you're in high school and uh, uh, and you're thinking it'd be fun to see if you could uh, earn some extra cash on the side. It is truly possible to have a career if you're good in bug as a bug as a bug hunter and getting bug bounties. Uh, I've got in the in the uh, it was just a it was a picture that was uh, covered in Hacker One's posting. We have a picture of 19-year-old Santiago Lopez who has just crossed the $1 million mark from purely $1 million U.S. dollars. He is the first bug bounty hunter millionaire just from finding and reporting security vulnerabilities through HackerOne's bug bounty program. I, I noted at the top of the show that we don't know if maybe he's made actually more money than that because he's sold some really tasty ones to Zimperium, who knows? Um, he's got a, an interesting Twitter feed. I, I would commend people to go poke at. I've got a link in the show notes also. Uh, and last Friday, March 1st, the BBC ran an interview with Santiago titled How One Teenager is Making Millions by Hacking Legally. Uh, their byline said this, or their their little summary said this. Nineteen-year-old Santiago Lopez from Argent. Uh, this is sorry, nineteen-year-old Santiago Lopez from Argentina. Arge, do I, I have a problem pronouncing that? Argentina. Argentina. Gee, yeah, it got one more syllable in it. It's supposed to Argentina. Thank you, Leo. He's the first million. He's the first millionaire bug bounty hacker which means he gets paid, this is the BBC's talking, of course, we all know what they are, gets paid to find glitches in the software of some of the world's biggest companies. Mr. Lopez made his money on the world's biggest ethical hacking platform, HackerOne. BBC News' Joe Tidy has been, has been to see how he spends the money, thus the BBC story that I think our listeners may find interesting. And I have a, a, a link, as I said, to that in the show notes. And also, HackerOne did a report uh, uh, published on February 1st, so a little over a month ago. They said, today, the HackerOne community hit $45 million in bounty payouts. Join us as we celebrate the hackers who are making the internet a safer place every single day. The party is going to last the whole way to a history-making 50 million in bounty payouts. And in their 
in this posting that I have or their PDF that I have a link to, they started off by by defining hacker. So they show, you know, hacker and how it's pronounced phonetically, declaring it to be a noun. And for their definition, which I really like, they said, one who enjoys the intellectual challenge of creatively overcoming limitations. And I think that's a great definition of a hacker. One who enjoys the intellectual challenge of creatively overcoming limitations. And again, I would commend this report to our listeners who might be interested. They have, they have a lot of, of, of like bios and, uh, and details about the hackers. I'll share, I'll share just the top of it. They said, welcome to the age of the hacker. Hackers are heroes. They're in it for the good, and there is more opportunity than ever before. We share some of their stories and celebrate their impact in this, the third annual Hacker Report. The Hacker Report details the more than 300,000 individuals that represent our hacker community today. It highlights where hackers live, what motivates them, and what their favorite hacking targets and tools are, where they learn, why they collaborate, and much more. In 2018 alone, hackers earned more than $19 million in bounties, almost the entire amount awarded in the years prior combined. So it's on a ramp. And while the most successful find it very lucrative, it's about so much more than money. Many are finding career-building opportunities through bug bounties, which companies hiring from with bug bounties with companies hiring from within the hacker community at a faster clip than ever before. And that's a point I've made. Um, like there are some very beautiful uh, pieces of work where I've thought to myself, boy, you know, if I were in the hiring business still, I'd ask this person for a job. They are good. They say, Companies are utilizing bug bounty reports and hacker engagement as an enhanced resume of proven skills that will impact company goals and security efforts from day one. The generosity and camaraderie of hackers continues to impress with more effort emphasis than ever before on education, collaboration, and giving back. As hacking grows in popularity, Training continues to be a focus with more than 600 hackers joining, registering to join the ranks at any given day. In-depth training modules such as Hacker One capture, capture the Flag challenges are in demand. They say the past year we saw incredible individual performances such as hackers earning $100,000 for one vulnerability and the first hacker Santiago passing the one million milestone, one million dollar milestone. We also saw unmatched collaboration while hackers acting as teams to report over 250 valid customer vulnerabilities. They say hackers represent a global force for good, coming together to help address the growing security needs of our increasingly interconnected society. The community welcomes all who enjoy the intellectual challenge to creatively overcome limitations. Their reasons for hacking may vary, but the results are consistently impressing the growing ranks of organizations 
Embracing Hackers Through Hacker-Powered Security. I like that. Hacker-Powered Security. Leaving us all a lot safer than before. Um, and they did note that top earners, top hacker earners, can make up to 40 times the median annual wage of a software engineer in their home country, respectively. So uh, I, I think what we're seeing is we're seeing a sea change here. Hacker-powered security. Uh, and, you know, if you've got skills with a Z, I think you ought to consider it. Where does Hacker uh, One these, get its money from? Uh, do private uh, they're, enterprises they're, hire them? Yes. So, so bounties are posted by like GE and and Tesla and others to say we we are formally inviting people to try to find problems in our products, and if found. We will pay. Yeah, but why go through Hacker One? Why not just go directly to GE? Does Hacker One keep a cut? There, no. Well, they 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 do keep a small cut, but they're a clearinghouse, and, and and they so so they've got the hackers registered with them, and they're able to then post uh, opportunities ah. of for, of like you know here are things that GE would be interested in having you attempt to find vulnerabilities in. And and here are the payouts for from GE on various classes of vulnerabilities that you find. Got it. And they keep five yeah. so, percent so, or something so, for that service. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so 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 they're like the the clearinghouse, and they put the hackers together with those uh, offering bounties to have their basically hacker powered security, have their security tested and improved. Hmm. I just think it's it's a win. It's a brilliant I totally, business idea, actually, on totally their part. Totally see, yes, totally see that for the, the right kind of guy who's, you know, eclectic and doesn't want to work for the man and, 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 you know, has faith and confidence in their own skills, it's something you could start part-time while you're, you know, in high school or going through college, see if you've got what it takes. Uh, and just like this podcast that is not running out of material, Lord knows, we're at the two-hour and nine-minute mark at this point. So it is very clear the world is not going to run out of bugs ever. One of the big stories uh, of 2018 was the Mirai botnet. Uh, in fact, I, as I remember, Mirai took over routers and took down the PlayStation Network and other servers during the holiday season last year. Well, Mirai didn't go away in 2019. In fact, according to Steve, it was bigger than ever. The Mirai botnet is alive and well and more scary and capable than ever. Um, we'll remember that the that is considered an IoT malware. It broke the DDoS attack size record in 2016 when it was used to attack Brian Krebs, forcing him to, to like off the net. Uh, also, the French web host o, uh, OVH was uh, attacked, and then all, and then most famously, the DNS provider Dyn DNS was forced off the net. And of course, because the, the D, we all depend upon DNS to varying degrees, that caused a ripple effect and all kinds of other sites disappeared as their DNS expired and it couldn't get refreshed from the 
from their, their from their assigned DNS provider that was in this case Dyn DNS. So Mirai has been updated to target a new crop of devices, including two, which are often found inside enterprise networks, where, as we know, bandwidth is often more plentiful than it is on consumer IoT networks. Mirai now knows how to infect webcams, routers, DVRs, as well as many other internet-connected devices, which typically ship with default credentials, as we know, and typically they're running never updated and thus woefully outdated versions of Linux. Yesterday morning, Palo Alto Networks Unit 42, I love it that they called themselves the Unit 42, they posted uh, news of a new Mirai titled New Mirai Variant Targets Enterprise Wireless Presentation and Display Systems. So I've edited this down a bit for length and clarity, but they basically wrote the Mirai variant that Unit 42 discovered is notable for targeting different embedded devices like routers, network storage devices, network video recorders, and IP cameras using numerous exploits against them. Specifically, Unit 42 found this new variant targeting We Present. WIPG1000 wireless presentation systems and LG's SuperSign TVs. They wrote, both these devices are intended for use by businesses. This development indicates to us a potential shift to using Mirai to target enterprises. Attack code exploiting a We Present command injection vulnerability was published in 2017, while a remote code in, uh, execution exploit for the LG SuperSign TVs has been available since last September. After being packaged into this new Mirai variant, the exploits become much more likely than previously to actively be used to compromise their vulnerable devices. And this is not the first time Mirai has been aimed at enterprise networks. Last September, Palo Alto Networks reported that Mirai was found targeting the same Apache Struts vulnerability that hackers exploited to breach Equifax. So in addition to this newer targeting, this new Mirai variant incorporates 11 new exploits in its multi-exploit kit, the new, uh, and has four sets of new credentials used in brute-forcing device sign-on. So Mirai is still alive and well. Uh, it had 16 previous, previously seen exploits. It added 11. So it's gotten way more competent, and it is still out there scanning the Internet, looking for new victims and, unfortunately, finding them. Um it uses a, uh, uh, a an HTTP flood to do uh, DDoS attacks, and uh, and and it is a worm. So once it gets uh, a a beachhead, it then starts scanning for other available devices, both inside and outside of its network. So you know, doesn't look like the internet is going to be getting rid of Mirai anytime soon. 
and we're just going to, you know, be stuck with this thing and it's going to be, uh, you know, causing more havoc. Teams from the Graz University of Technology, whom we have spoken of before, KU Leuven and Cyberus Technology have been at it again. Uh, and if we ever wanted, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I made a perfect example of Bruce Schneier's sage observation that attacks never get weaker. They only ever get stronger. Uh, we have it here. What these guys have done quietly, although they've known for a year, none of us have, um, they have been sitting probably impatiently on this, um, is a truly significant advancement to um, the practicality of what was the mostly theoretical attack on speculation and micro-architectural performance boosting that we began talking about right from the start of last year. So the, the term micro-architecture is all throughout this. Um, so let me just explain. The architecture is what the code that runs on the processor sees. So it's, you know, it's the registers, uh, it's the uh, 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 the stack, the, um, the various uh, execution units, you know, the, the, the it, it's, it's the view that the, that the processor provides to the code. It was quite a while ago that that stopped being the only architecture in the chip, um, especially for the Intel chips, because the instructions are so complicated that as they as they as they kept adding new features, they the the, it, the 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 idea of designing this instruction set, implementing the instruction set as gates, just as simple logic became impossible, especially when they started wanting to get really fancy. So what happened was they created a, a processor inside the processor there, you know, the, the so-called microcode. So that runs, the microcode runs on the micro architecture, which is this, this, this processor running at the clock speed that is given to the chip, the, you know, three gigahertz or whatever it is. And, and that processor essentially implements the instruction set that the outside world sees. So, and that's how when micro, when, when Intel produces a, an update to the firmware of the chip, that that's the microcode that implements this. And so, so that's what, so the, so, for example, when they talk about microarchitectural data sampling vulnerabilities, what what's what the the what the lid that's been torn off of of the Intel architecture, unfortunately, is that that there are all kinds of because you have a processor in a processor because there's there's a whole nother dance going on separate from the one that's public. All of the attention up until now has been on the security of the public processor. That is, it's 
been scrutinized and it's been looked at and it's been validated as secure. Nothing leaks at that level. But what what we what as soon as we started looking past that, we got the specter and meltdown problems at the beginning of last year. So so this is just you know, this is so tasty for researchers. No one who's really into this has been able to put it down. And what what has what came to light last Tuesday morning, as this podcast was already set up and ready to go, um, was essentially, I would say it's more than the next shoe to drop. It's it's an anvil dropped because what was what happened was the the change from theoretical to absolutely proven. Um, this is probably why Intel was really in a panic. The Intel has known of this for a year, and so the good news is, you know, they've taken responsibility. I would, oh my God, I would do anything to be a fly on the wall of. I mean, like to know really what has been going on inside their meetings, because I mean, it has to be some some, you know, serious discussion about, you know, how they got into this position and how these problems occurred. But anyway, um, what we have now after more than a year of trouble is the so-called it's sort of been generalized to microarchitectural data sampling vulnerabilities. And to that original work, which first brought us Meltdown, we have on this site, cpu.fail, has zombie load that we had fun just saying <laughs> last week. We have something called RIDL, Fallout, and store to leak forwarding. Each of those is a different exploitation of subtle features of Intel processors, which have been produced over the last eight years since around 2011, which makes, which as a consequence, make it extremely difficult for it, the processor, to keep its secrets as it was always designed to. That is, I mean, until the beginning of last year, we had these processors sitting on servers in cloud environments with VMs sharing a single core among any random set of, of parties, whether, whether friendly to each other or not. Um, that all changed at the beginning of last year because it turns out that it is it, it was at that time it was theoretically possible a couple examples were shown mostly it was done like oh you know goodness uh, here's a problem we need need to fix this before it's too late well what we got just last tuesday in the form of firmware updates for the micro architectures at some significant performance hit. I've seen some benchmarks that look like it takes eh, maybe 10 to 12% off the top, which is a chunk of performance. Because unfortunately, as we've seen, 
in order to prove, you know, the, these problems are a, are a result of, of the past of other threads of execution leaving trails, leaving hints in the microarchitecture, which clever researchers are able to pull or able to tease out over time. And, and again, these attacks have only gotten better. Cool. Okay, so zombie load. I'm not going to go into infinite detail, but I want because I just want to give our listeners a sense for this. Zombie load uh, resurrects private browsing history and other sensitive data. It allows the leakage of information from other applications from the operating system across virtual machine boundaries in the cloud and from trusted execution environments. The RIDL attack allows the leakage of information across various security domains from different buffers, such as line fill buffers and load ports. Those are microarchitecture attributes that are not surfaced at the processor level, but they're, they're all part of the plumbing that's going on behind the scenes. RIDL demonstrates attacks on other applications the operating system, virtual machines, and trusted execution environments. So there's a lot of over overlap between these, but they are diff they're different types of attacks against, against different facets of the microarchitecture. The fallout attack allows reading uh, what the operating system recently wrote and figuring out the memory position of components of the operating system thus strengthening other attacks. In other words, it helps to defeat KASLR, Kernel Address Space Layout Randomization. And finally, the store-to-leak forwarding exploits CPU optimizations introduced by another microarchitectural component, the store buffer, to, break, to also break address randomization, monitor the operating system or to leak data when combined with some aspects of Spectre. Uh, Spectre created these, these gadgets which were, were way uh, uh, little pieces of code which were used. Stored leak forwarding is able to reuse some of these Spectre gadgets, essentially making the attacks stronger. Microsoft, for their part, last Tuesday on May 14th, wrote... Uh, on May 14th, Intel published information about a new subclass of speculative execution side-channel vulnerabilities known as microarchitectural data sampling. And, of course, now we know the data being sampled <laughs> is somebody else's data. If you happen to be sharing a, an Intel processor with somebody else, Microsoft said an attacker who successfully exploited these vulnerabilities may be able to read privileged data across trust boundaries. In shared resource environments, such as exists in some cloud services configurations, these vulnerabilities could allow one virtual machine to improperly access information from another. So this is, you know, sounds like a repeat of what we've been talking about all of last year. In non-browsing scenarios on standalone systems, an attacker would need prior access to the system or an, or 
an ability to run a specially crafted application on the target system to leverage these vulnerabilities. What they didn't explicitly say is that code running in a browser is able to, to determine what the browser has been doing. So it's a potentially significant um, privacy violation just using a browser at the browser level. So they allocated, or I should say uh, the, the CVE system allocated four different CVEs, um, a microarchitecture store buffer data sampling, which was given the acronym MSBDS, um, microarchitecture fill buffer data sampling, MFBDS, microarchitecture load port data sampling, MLPDS and microarchitectural data data sampling of uncacheable memory, MDSUM. So, over on the CPU.fail site, uh, they did a little Q and A to sort of help demystify this. Uh, they asked, "Am I affected by this bug?" The answer, most certainly, yes. Are these software bugs? No. These bugs are in the processor. Software can work around these bugs, which costs performance. Future processors will have integrated fixes. And that is no doubt true. They ask, can I detect whether someone has exploited this leakage against me? They say, we have no data on this. The exploitation might, may not leave any traces in traditional log files. Can my AV detect or block these attacks. They said, while possible in theory, this is unlikely in practice. These attacks are hard to distinguish from regular benign applications. However, they write, your AV may detect malware, which uses the attacks by comparing binaries after they become known. They ask, has this been used in the wild? And they answer, we don't know. So, that they wrote a 16-page detailed paper that I'm not going to drag us through, uh, and I've already pretty much uh, explained what I had here in the uh, uh, that I quoted from the abstract at the top of the paper. They conclude though, saying, "With zombie load, we showed, and and this is in the in these 16 pages in zombie load, we showed a novel meltdown." type attack targeting the processor's fill buffer logic. Zombie load enables an attacker to leak recently loaded values used by the current or sibling logical CPU. We show that zombie load allows leaking across user space processes, CPU protection rings, virtual machines, and SGX enclaves. We demonstrated, and they did this, the immense attack potential and that's what has changed if i mean the takeaway here is this went from being well okay you know yeah in theory this could happen this this research changed this to making these practical attacks they said we demonstrate the immense attack potential by monitoring browser behavior extracting AES encryption keys, establishing cross-VM covert channels, and recovering SGX ceiling keys, Intel's secure enclave. 
Finally, we conclude with that we conclude that disabling hyperthreading is the only possible workaround to mitigate zombie load on current processors. So for what it means to us, as I said, um, this is this is primarily a further collapse in interthread isolation. Um, interthread isolation only matters if you've got if you if one way or another a system has a malicious thread running on it. Um, in the case of a user's machine, um, a malicious thread we would call malware. In that case, you've already got malware on your system, and so you're in trouble. Um, you know, the, this, this could be a way of, of, for malware to extract encryption keys from your system. Like, for example, if you are using BitLocker, and depending upon BitLocker's um, encryption of your hard drive, it would be possible for malware to reach into the kernel to get the key that it would not otherwise have access to because it would be well protected um, and then, you know, make off with it or send it somewhere, use it, do whatever, whatever it wants to. So, but in general, once you've already got a malicious thread on your system, you've, you're already in trouble. The real problem, as I've mentioned, is in the cloud environment where you might very well have a, a huge heterogeneous environment with a, a data center full of servers that are, are, that are just mixing and matching and running anybody's code on any piece of hardware, you know, moving VMs about uh, without any concern. That's the way a lot of these systems are set up now. The problem is a bad guy gets in there on a system that has not been mitigated against this set of problems and you've got trouble. Um, I know under Linux with these patches applied and a state-of-the-art Linux, I've seen some benchmarks that look like it takes about, as I said, about 10 to 12% of performance wow. right off the top. Um, it looks like it's, it's a, a larger hit on the later processors because the later processors more thoroughly take advantage of, of sophisticated microarchitecture in order, in order to speed things up. So as I said, my subtitle was speeding up is hard to do. Basically, I mean, I don't know what Intel is going to do. Um, they're probably what it means is that we're going to have to build into our operating system some some explicit flushing or or maybe an, an, an additional level of blinding between threads. Uh, right now, there is very little thread isolation between hyperthreads because hyperthreading is basically a second set of registers that you just you do a very fast context switch from one bank of registers to the next. Uh, it was a clever, very inexpensive um, way of of allowing a processor to continue running when it would otherwise have had its thread stall waiting for something, Intel said, hey, wait a minute, you know, with almost no additional logic, we can create a lightweight, a lightweight context switch just by, you know, creating a second logical thread on the same hardware. Yes, they were right, 
but boy, you know, you don't want to have that other thread sharing the same core, which is what happens. You don't want to have it be malicious. So, so already we have this notion at the architecture level of context switching. That's, you know, that's what we do is, you know, when, when we push all of the threads on the stack and then load, load the, uh, all the registers from a different thread that has been, been stopped, that's a context switch. What I think we're going to end up seeing is Intel having to, in order to save, you know, the, the, the fundamental design of their chips and, and implement a system which is secure, we're going to have to get something like, like a context switching mechanism at the microarchitecture level. Um, it should have always had it. Nobody was looking. And, and nobody was this clever about, and I guess really appreciated how much information could be obtained from little subtle variations in timing. At this point, uh, it really breaks the barrier between, certainly between hyper-threaded, a, a pair of threads running on the same core. And of course, as we know now, since cores share caches and we're able to probe cache contents, um, nothing is safe. So uh, uh, at a cost of performance today, we're getting, we're getting firmware updates. Um, Microsoft has said they're only going to be doing it for Windows 10. So um, if you are running Windows 7 in an environment where you're at risk, and again, there's a bunch of caveats, in an environment where you're at risk, then it's worth updating your BIOS. I mean, I guess in general, it's, there's no reason not to update your BIOS is one is, is available from your manufacturer. But unless you are in an environment where you really are running um, threads that have a, high, have a probability, a likelihood, a, a, a reasonable possibility of being malicious, if, if that's not your environment, all of this is interesting and it's being fixed for you but probably not a source of it should not be a source of great concern. Good. Yes. And I wonder with it, when they fix it with hardware mitigations if they can do it without penalty. I think we're going to get performance back. Yes, okay. because I mean this really did catch them off guard and right. I mean I'm as I've said before, I'm amazed they can fix this with firmware changes. I mean that suggests that yeah. the the chips are way more programmable than I would have imagined. And so the fact that they can actually add you know, like m what amounts to major features, basically there are, there are feature registers that only the kernel has access to. Sometimes you only have uh, like access at the BIOS level at boot time and then it's all locked down. Um, but they're adding bits that were never assigned to feature registers which are controlling significant aspects of the microarchitecture. I'm amazed that they can do that in microcode. I mean, it's like the whole thing really is deeply programmable, which surprises me. Well, so, but I mean, all they're doing is saying don't do speculative execution in effect, right? Yeah, but they never had a reason not to. <laughs> right. So why, why would they give why it? Why let it, why, why why is why that let switch it be there? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I mean... What it tells you is that a lot of the way processors work is not in the processor. It's in the microcode, which is programmable. Right. right. So, I mean, I'm being, this is a very stupid way of looking at it, but maybe they just did a branch around the speculative part. Like, 
there's a chunk of code that that says, well, let's see if we can figure out ahead of time what he's going to do. Just jump over that stuff. <laughs> Keep on going. Don't try. Don't attempt it. And the reason I ask if uh, hardware fixes can still give you the you know the performance is. I imagine they're just going to eliminate speculative execution in the hardware, which would give you a hit unless they come up with something other than that. Well, all they have – okay, knowing what they know now, they could segment right. the history. We've talked about this before because yes. the problem is a leak of information from one thread yes. to another. If yes. you don't make that possible, you, yes. you hide it, then you don't have to worry yes. about it. If the context switching goes deeper into the architecture than just at the architecture level, if right. the context switching is pushed into the microarchitecture, then at, at a cost of significantly more complexity, you get performance and you get inter-thread isolation. And right. that's what we need. Marcus Hutchins is free. Free at last. Um, it was two years ago, this, this coming... DEFCON, uh, after the annual 2017 DEFCON Security Conference, as Marcus was, I guess he was, to, to, he described himself as still sort of suffering. He was hungover and intoxicated from partying the night before. He was walking through the Las Vegas yeah, that's, airport. That's when they get you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have your guard down. Yep. Uh, preparing to return home to the UK that he was nabbed by uh, law enforcement. Uh, and of course, he had been for many years a reformed gray or black hat, I guess. Um, I don't think he ever actively participated in, in malicious hacking, but he did write some, you know, in his, in his youth uh, as, as an adolescent, he wrote some malware. Um, anyway, he was nabbed uh, and held on charges of computer hacking, fraud, and abuse. Uh, it wasn't long before he was released on bail from jail, but he was, uh, uh, he had, I think he had an, ank a, 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 an ankle uh, tracker. So he was working with attorneys, and we've talked about him several times over the last couple of years as his case has moved through the legal system. Um, and he's been working with his defense team and appearing at various legal hearings from time to time. Um, we know that he had outgrown that those earlier, uh, you know, his sort of sketchy adolescence. Uh, where he was d doing some things that were, you know, not on the up and up. A and let us not forget that what initially brought Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak together was their interest in what, what was known as blue boxing, which were these little boxes which generated different sets of tones than the normal touch tone tones, which were used to sidestep the long distance uh, telephone billing that the United that, that, that the US telephone system used for making free long distance phone calls. So you know even our contemporary tech heroes uh, were you know not always on the up and up. Anyway, shortly before his arrest, 
he was studying, that is Marcus, was studying the alarming emergence and rapid propagation of the incredibly prolific and dangerous wannacry internet worm. And in his research, he serendipitously halted its progress, uh, and we've talked about this many times, by, by looking inside the code, seeing that there was a, a kind of an odd DNS query that the worm was making. He went, when he looked up what the, that the, that what the DNS domain was that it was querying, he found it was unregistered. He thought, okay, that's weird. I wonder what this, what it's doing with that DNS address. So he registered it. And in the process of it no longer being unregistered, just that act halted the worm's propagation. It And we never really understood in detail, like we never had a, a, a clear understanding of why. It's believed that it that was a kill switch, which Marcus, as I said, serendipitously set in order to cause the worm to stop propagating. And it turns out that this was taken into account. U.S. District Judge Joseph Peter uh, Statmuller said that the malware Hutchins helped stop was much more damaging than the two programs he created and thus sentenced him only to time served with a year of supervised release. So Marcus is free to return to the UK. Um, he tweeted on July 26th, which was uh, last Friday. He tweeted, first, heading into court now, no matter what happens, I love y'all. And then a short time later, he tweeted, sentenced to time served, exclamation port, point, incredibly thankful for the understanding and leniency of the judge, the wonderful character letter you all sent, and everyone who helped me through the past two years, both financially and emotionally. That was at 11.25 a.m. last Friday. So uh, he's free to return to the U.K. U.S. authorities still need to decide whether he's now barred from returning to the U.S., due to his criminal record, unquote. And of course, in my opinion, barring him would be really dumb. But on the other hand, we did say U.S. authorities. So, you know, we'll see what happens. So that's good news, a nice outcome. And it would be nice if he were free to return. You know, he his presentation at, at, at Black Hat uh, or DEFCON was about what he had just done with WannaCry. And so after, you know, demonstrating he, he was, I mean, he had been doing other, you know, white hat hacking things. He was, you know, uh, uh, his, his, as we know, his Twitter handle was, was malware tech blog. Uh, and, and so, you know, he was, he was blogging about, you know, how to stop this stuff now. And, uh, anyway, so the, you know, this was the right outcome and, uh, it would be nice if we let him come back to, to future black hat and DEF CON presentations.
So, of course, the biggest story of uh, 2019 and 2018 and probably 2020 is ransomware. And the summer brought some massive ransomware attacks. It got to the point where I had to say to Steve, okay, (laughs) enough. (laughs) We know ransomware is a problem. This was probably the straw that broke the camel's back, the massive Texas ransomware attack. 23 cities. Listen. The news as of Friday from Texas was government agencies. Nobody knew what government agencies, but we knew there were 23 of them were all hit with a, well, now we know it's cities. We'll get to that in a minute. It were all simultaneously hit with a well-coordinated, simultaneous and effective ransomware attack last Friday, August 16th. 23 Texas entities, the majority of which are local governments, were hit by a ransomware attack on Friday that Texas officials say is part of a targeted attack launched by a single threat actor. Details still remain scant about the specific agencies hit by the ransomware attacks, which began on the morning of August 16th, as well as exactly which systems were impacted. However, the Texas Department of Information Resources, DIR, as of Saturday night, did say that responders are actively working with all 23 entities, and who knows how many were attacked that didn't get infected, but 23 different things, different networks, different agencies. Now we know it's actually 23 cities uh, were brought down by a massive coordinated attack. Um, So uh, this DIR, the Department of Information Resources, is currently working as of Saturday night to bring their systems back online. and that the state of Texas systems and networks itself were not impacted. So what we do know is that these 23 agencies were knocked offline and presumably encrypted by this simultaneous attack. I checked yesterday in local reporting and like, of like, I don't know, the Texas Gazette or something, and it didn't have any more information still. The Texas Department of Information Resources website posted a statement saying that, quote, currently DIR, the Texas Military Department, and Texas A&M University System Cyber Response and Security Operations Center teams are deploying resources to the most critically impacted jurisdictions. Further resources will be deployed as they are requested. When pressed for additional details, the Texas DIR declined to elucidate any further, stating, quote, due to security concerns, unquote, or read embarrassment, perhaps, saying only that they were smaller local governments. Yes, 23 of them. The DIR did not provide information about which systems are down, how systems were first infected, and the specific amount of ransom. (laughs) <laughs> you know, that's going to be adding up uh, in their reporting of this threat post reached out to representatives from Dallas, Houston and Austin for comment on whether they were impacted by the attack. 
While representatives from Dallas and Austin have not yet responded, I wonder if their email's down, <clears throat> a spokesperson from Houston told Threat Post that, as far as we know, Houston has not been affected. Uh, I think they would know if they had been. According to a statement sent to Threat Post, quote, the city of Houston is aware that a ransomware attack has affected several local government agencies throughout Texas. We are in contact with the Texas State Operations Center and will monitor the latest developments. Whew. The Mayor's Office of Homeland Security and the IT Services Department will continue to proactively work to secure and protect the city's assets. However, the DIR said that at this time, and not surprisingly, given what we know, evidence gathering indicates the attacks came from one single threat actor. Alan Liska, who is a, th a threat intel analyst with Recorded Future, we've mentioned, we've spoken of them a number of times. They're a, a, a you know in the middle of the thick of things uh, security firm. Told Threat Post that the attacks signify an important shift in the ransomware threat model. Typically, state and local governments have been targets of opportunity for ransomware attacks, with the gangs behind these attacks, Ryuk and SamSam, appearing to stumble onto previous state and local government targets. However, or that is, you know, stumble previously onto them. However, this instance, this incident, he says, appears to be the first where a string of governments were actively being targeted in an attack. He said, this is the first time there's been an attack against several local governments in a state. He says, this is big. It's a game changer. This will change the model going forward for attackers, and that will be a problem for governments. Allen also noted that one advantage Texas has is it has a coordinated incident response. The response team is centralized for cities and counties in emergencies, which makes it easier when there is a problem like this to find and reach out to a main contact. There's someone to call. Um, so as anyway, as I said, I looked for any update as I was putting these notes together yesterday. Everyone is being quiet. We're not. They're now saying that it's 23 individual cities across Texas, but. That's all we know. And I, <laughs> I shudder to think of, of the ransom that is being requested. I mean, you know, say there are some cities that do have current backups. In our previous reporting of this over the last few months, we've noted that recovering from an attack like this is sometimes more like without paying ransom is sometimes more expensive then if you pay the ransom and you are able to decrypt the systems in place, just just due to the, due to the logistics of, of having systems which have been there, who knows how old they are, what software they have on them, you know, how, how recent the backups are, whether the backups were online and therefore themselves also got encrypted in the process. It's a mess. I mean, this really is... Uh, an interesting, um, really significant new problem for for U.S. municipalities. I mean, it's just not exaggerating to 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 say that. So last week we talked 
uh, a lot about the interesting blog that um, that Ian Beer at Google's Project Zero made, where uh, he told us about basically what they characterized as non-discriminating waterhole attacks on a small number of servers targeting specific groups. And Leo, you had some so some information that had just been been made public. I guess it was in in uh, TechCrunch had it, but TechCrunch. I yes, think Alex Stamos was tweeting about this. He suggested, and I think he's probably right that. Google gave this information on background to TechCrunch because Apple confirmed it. Ah, okay, yes. Yeah. And in fact, we have some interesting code actually in the show notes that are that resulted from some additional research. I think it was RiskIQ that was able to provide additional detail. So anyway, so what we know is that last week Google published this their blog about vulnerabilities that Apple fixed Oh, oh, I'm sorry. What what Apple posted in there at the end of last week in their newsroom posting was they said, "What? Oh, I just got a big bright screen on my face. Uh, Windows 10 is back up <laughs> or just rebooting. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it did that about five times. And yeah. then I, it gave me like we're updating and stuff. OK, so I'll turn that big bright screen off <laughs> anyway. So so Google said last week. I mean, sorry, Apple, Apple posted the following last week, Google published a blog about vulnerabilities that Apple fixed for iOS users in February. They said, we've heard from customers who were concerned by some of the claims and we want to make sure all of our customers have the facts. Apple wrote first, the sophisticated attack was narrowly focused, not a broad-based exploit of iPhones en masse as described. So Apple was pushing back about some of what Google was saying. They wrote, the attack affected fewer than a dozen websites, that, and we'd heard 11, that focus on content related to, and I can't pronounce this, uh, what's the name of the Muslim community? It's U-I-G-H-U. The Uyghurs. The Uyghurs. The Uyghurs, yeah. Community. Uyghurs community. They said, regardless of the scale of the attack, we take the safety and security of all users extremely seriously. They wrote Google's post issued six months after iOS patches were released creates the false impression of mass exploitation to, quote, monitor the private activities of entire populations in real time, unquote, stoking fear among iPhone users that their devices had been compromised. This was never the case, wrote Apple. They said, second, all evidence indicates that these website attacks were only operational for a brief period, roughly two months, not two years, as Google implies. They wrote, we fixed the vulnerabilities in question in February, working extremely quickly which, of course, you and I, Leo, made a, a point of, of noting last week, to resolve the issue just 10 days after we learned about it. When Google approached us, we were already in the process of fixing the exploited bugs, which we, we didn't know of, if that's the case. They said security, <clears throat> this is Apple, 
is a never-ending journey, and our customers can be confident we are working for them. iOS security is unmatched because we take end-to-end responsibility for the security of our hardware and software. Our product security teams around the world are constantly iterating to introduce new protections and patch vulnerabilities as soon as they're found. We will never stop our tireless work to keep our users safe. So that was their blog posting, which a lot of a lot of those in the tech community were a little put off by. They weren't really super happy with with the tone of what Apple uh, of, of Apple's response. Last week, the head of threat research for Risk IQ told I told ZDNet for their reporting on this that the attacks were indeed very targeted, and that Google was wrong in its initial assessment. Uh, he later shared some thoughts in a public tweet and provided with uh, us with some code. <laughs> very targeted in their regard is well, it could only have affected the one billion people who are in China. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Mm, okay. Exactly. So, yeah. Of course, you know, as as we know, that was the group. We now we have reason to believe that it was and I think you had said this also last week, Leo, that it was China that the no doubt the Chinese government right. that had that that had infected some of these sites that was that was looking to pursue some of these groups. Um the JavaScript which was posted as part of uh, Risk IQ's research, de- you know, actually shows them pulling the um, pulling the the country of the user through JavaScript, looking for a match of the country equal to China, and if it's a Chinese person located at an IP address based in China, then it injects some additional javascript onto the page after all of this after waiting 60 seconds which then performs this this hack of ios devices um so and actually i learned a little something from looking at this javascript code there's a cool site ip.nf which uh if you visit if you just put ip.nf into your browser it pulls up a description of the api that this site provides and if you put ip.nf/me.json json what you get back is a little bit of json you know javascript object notation where some information about you based on your IP is shown. And when I did it, it was extremely accurate uh, in, its, in its location. And what the script does is it, it offers a little bit more parameterization. It's ip.nf forward slash me.json question mark callback equal jsons, J-S-O-N-S, which gives a more detailed result uh, of a, a sort of a, a full JSON hierarchy and the, then the JavaScript parses that in order to get the country of origin of the user from which the user is connecting out of the JSON and if at, in, you know in my case it said United Space States and no doubt for people in China it comes back saying China. Of course smartphone security probably 
you know, the most important kind of security for most of us. Our whole lives are on our smartphones. And I was, you know, a little skeptical when Apple announced Touch ID, a fingerprint reader, and then Face ID. But they've proven it can be done, and it can be done securely. Samsung, not so much. Well, and speaking of fingerprints, there it turns <laughs> out that the – thank you for the segue, Jason. It turns <laughs> out that the, the sexy ultrasonic finger reader – used by Samsung's flagship S10 and Note 10 smartphones can be spoofed with a $3 screen protector. <laughs> wah, wah, wah. Uh, at least one that's not made by Samsung. This recently came to light, although it was not the first time it was observed, uh, but it made news when a, a British woman claimed, and others, including Samsung, have since confirmed that after fitting her new phone with a screen protector, she was then able to unlock her S10 using any of her fingerprints, including ones not enrolled in the phone's authentication system. And since that made her curious, she reportedly then asked her husband to try the same thing, and his thumbprints worked too, as did the same trick on her sister's Samsung phone. So, obviously, something was wrong. Samsung's initial response when confronted with this was, we're investigating this internally. We recommend all customers use Samsung-authorized accessories specifically designed for Samsung products. Then, last week, in comments to Reuters, Samsung admitted the problem was real and said it would release a software patch. Now, that's going to be interesting because this seems like a technology problem. Anyway, they said, we are investigating this issue and will deploying will be deploying a software patch soon. We encourage any customers with questions or who need support downloading the latest software to contact us directly. So, okay, the issue with the S10 and screen protectors was first noticed when the smartphone was launched back in February of this year, um, but the issue failed to acquire critical mass. Unlike earlier designs, which used a dedicated sensor, the Qualcomm ultrasonic technology used by Samsung is embedded behind the screen and uses high-frequency sound, ultrasonics, which are modulated by the pressure of a user's finger against the screen glass. It was noticed, however, that covering the screen with a screen protector could, in some instances, create an air gap that could interfere with the integrity of the system's ultrasonics. Samsung's advice which still seems a bit flaky to me, is to use its brand screen protectors that use, they say, special adhesives that eliminate the possibility of any gap. So to my mind, this whole technology sh seems sketchy at best. Yeah. I, I would say that ultrasonic trans glass thumbprint reading is not compatible with screen protectors. That is to say, I, I mean, 
I think the technology is marginal. And like when you put your fingerprint right, you press your finger directly on the glass. The idea that you can read an image through the 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 display technology and all of its intervening electronics with some ultrasonic sensor behind there and get an image, to me, that's already amazing. Then the idea that you're going to introduce an additional uncontrollable layer of goo, which is to say adhesive, and then a plastic laminate in between the the glass that is being read. To me, I mean, you know, I wouldn't be at all surprised if this update actually checks to see if they are able to get an image and refuses to operate mm-hmm. if there is no image obtainable. That is to say, if in fact there's an air gap, then you're not going to actually get anything that looks like a fingerprint. And and so probably the technology that existed just took whatever it was getting and said, eh, <laughs> okay, that's your, you got a weird thumb lady, but <laughs> fine. Uh, and then just used it. But when in fact it wasn't a thumb, it was an air bubble that it was resolving. And so anybody else pressing on it got the same air bubble. So maybe what they're going to do is be a lot more discriminating about does this actually look like a finger or not? Right. And then, and just say, uh, no. And then say, you know, buy a real screen protector or sorry, we're maybe they'll just decide our technology is not compatible with screen protection. Good luck. Get a good case. Um, I don't know. Yeah, we'll see um, how that goes. <laughs> yeah. And to me, it, to me, it feels like they've hit a bump, a big bump in their fundamental um, biometric technology. And really, this sort of speaks to the larger issue that I just sort of wanted to address, which is that, you know, we're, we're always talking on this podcast about the, the trade-off between convenience and security. You know, a long, impossible to memorize password is incredibly inconvenient and incredibly secure if you otherwise manage it correctly. If it is really long and full of gibberish, you know, if it's it's high entropy, uses all the available characters, that's a really, really, that's really strong protection. And... And and it can, although it isn't used to identify someone because because we're not we can't prevent them from using monkey one, two, three. If it actually were a like if it had 256 bits of entropy, it could be used to securely authenticate someone. I mean, it's that good. Whereas. Notice that that the biometrics we're using today, they're not identifying someone. They're confirming a presumed identification. That's a far lower bar to, to meet. 
for example, one you know time-based tokens the you know the the six digits that change every thirty seconds. Similarly, they don't identify you; they only confirm your presumed identity, which again is a much lower bar to meet. So, so the biometric systems that we have today. They're making a go no go decision. You know, they assume the uh, they like who it is. They they've been trained on someone's face, and so they're looking out at the person, going, "Hmm, uh, does this look like Granny or not?" and and making a go no go decision. So so we're what we're asking for is far lower. Um, determination, d determinism than l having them look out and go, oh, that's John from down the street and then like loading his account or something. No, if, you know, this is a simple yes, no decision being made. And even so, it is very problematic. Do you know, Jason, and I, I didn't tr track the, the technology in the Pixel 4. We know because I was following it when Apple came out with their Face ID, yeah. all this fancy 3D camera st stuff, how they like paint a dot grid, yep. an, an IR dot grid out on the person's face in order to make it, to require it to be 3D. And then they they, they like do a, a full like multiple stereo vision rendering thing. Does the Pixel 4 have all of that? Yeah, the Pixel 4 is the first uh, Pixel to do that, actually. And I think that was part of, uh, I mean, from what I understand, that was part of the reason why Google got rid of the fingerprint uh, sensor altogether, because they felt confident enough in that collection. So it's very similar to Apple's approach. It sounds like one of the main things that's missing from the Pixel 4 and the Apple approach is the eyes open um, detection, <laughs> which is a pretty yeah. And one. you know, but you yeah, would not similar. think you would not think, given all the awesome technology that Google has in that phone. I mean, I, I watched their presentation. I was yeah. like, holy crap. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there. Yeah. You'd think it could tell whether someone's eyes are open or not. I mean, a dog can. Well, yeah, and what's interesting also, but maybe this doesn't have anything to do with the eyes, is there's another setting in Android settings called screen aware or something like that. And it's a setting that when it's activated, it can tell when you're looking at your phone in order to keep the display huh. from timing out. But now that I say that, like it might just be that you're facing the phone, not that your eyes are open. Um, if it's your eyes are open, then it's like, okay, you kind of already got the detection going on. Like, And that sounds like do. that was a pre-Pixel 4 thing too, right? Yeah. The, the, the phones have had that for a while. Some phones so, have had that. I don't know that the Pixel has had that though. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think that's a new feature of the Pixel. So Interesting. But, yeah. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if... Uh, you know, in light of this with the um, with the ultrasonic fingerprint sensor <laughs> allowing anyone's fingerprint to let someone in uh, based on this, the screen protector that's installed, if Samsung then ends up going, in, you know, maybe they're already working on this, g going in the same route as as Apple and the same route as as Google with the Pixel 4. And this just becomes another reason why they then get rid of the, the fingerprint sensor and go for face. Do I remember Leo saying that he was not happy with the performance of the S10's sensor? Like, it, does it take a while to yes to 
operate. Yeah, yeah. I, I think Leo and I share the same opinion, and it wasn't just the S10 uh, in display. Well, no, sorry. It was the Note 10 and the S10 both have the in-display uh, fingerprint sensor, and it's the ultrasonic, of course, different from what we've seen a lot of other in-display fingerprint sensors be, which was optical. And like the OnePlus 7T and 7 Plus or 7 Pro, they have an optical in-display fingerprint sensor that is super responsive and super quick and works almost every time. The S10 and the Note uh, 10, in my experience, and I think Leo would agree, is just really like it, it, it works half the time. It's hard to get it just right. It's, you know, you do it and it's like press a little harder, press a little. It just it doesn't work nearly as effectively. Interesting. Even so, though it's supposedly so, so, the better, more secure solution. Yeah. So though you are able to do an in-screen optical sensor. That's cool. I didn't know. Yeah. I didn't realize that there there were those around. I agree. That would be great. But but again, everybody's got a camera already looking out the front of the phone. The yeah. problem, of course, is that it's 2D and you absolutely need to have 3D in order to, you know, up the ante and try to determine whether this is a, a, a live or, or, you know, static person. So, right, right. Uh, you know, so everybody's being, and who knows, I mean, we, we've already seen like 3d modeling of faces and all kinds of other stuff that you're able to, to do once you've got 3d camera technology looking out at you. So uh, it just sort of seems like that's the direction everyone's going to go in. Yeah. And of course the other problem uh, that we didn't talk about, but we have in the past when, we, when we're d discussing biometrics is is a super, super complex, long password, which can be used to uniquely identify you and is incredibly robust and secure, can be changed. You cannot change your face. That's you true. cannot change your you cannot change your fingerprints. So on the one hand, your face and your fingerprint are something you always have with you. The problem is there's something you always have with you mm -hmm. and like for life rather right. than just, you know, for your current excursion from the house. So uh, I always uh, tend to fall back on on like multiple points of authentication. Like I've yes. always wondered why if if the fingerprint sensor on a phone is so ubiquitous and now, you know, now we're kind of heading out of out of that trend, it seems like uh, getting rid of it. But if it's so ubiquitous, why can't I have it so that I'm using my fingerprint sensor when I enter my my pin and those combined to say, hey, he knows the right digits and his fingerprint is the right one. This is the right person. If people really want to be just that extra level of secure or fingerprint sensor along with face face scanning, why can't they both combine? And I, I, I feel like now yep. that I'm saying it, that we've talked about it before, and one of the points that maybe you mentioned is if one of those things is out of whack, it makes it incredibly difficult for you to ever get into your device. Maybe that well, was you. I can't remember. Maybe it was someone yeah, else. But. Uh, yeah. And, and that I, I do remember you and I talking about that. Yeah. And that's the, that's the other problem is that we've got, you got multiple factors and they're all a little bit soft. So, right, you, right. The, you know, so you have on one hand, you don't want a false positive. So you so you don't want to allow somebody in who should not get in, nor do you want a false negative. You don't want to prevent the authorized user from getting in when they want to get in. I mean, that's very frustrating. I remember I think it was the very first was it the very first touch ID, something that Apple did just wasn't working that well when, when they first released it. It was like, uh, 
you know, mm-hmm. and like, you know, it was required. I think it was the very first touch ID or maybe I, I, I later figured out how to overtrain it. And I think that's what it was. I was able to overtrain it and then bring its reliability up where I wanted to, uh, where I wanted it to be. But, but again, because it's a heuristic system that's inherently making a judgment call, does this look enough like the person I've seen before? Because, of course, our faces are changing yeah. subtly over, over time. Right. Our, our, our hands pick up da- you know, damage from, from the environment, uh, cuts and scrapes and things sometimes. You know? So it's, do, am I sure enough about who this is? But if it was a super high entropy password, it's not a matter of being sure enough. It's like, holy crap, that's got to be the person because right. nobody else could get this. Could, <laughs> yes, could, yes, could get this right. Right. And so, so uh, you know, we're, we're, we're dealing with, you know, the, the more soft decisions we make, the, the, the softer the overall compound decision becomes. Yeah. And that means that that we become more likely to false positive or false negative, and that doesn't help anybody either. So, right. you know, I, I, it really, it seems very clear that biometrics is the future. People want the convenience. The only thing I would suggest to people, and we've said this on this podcast before, is give your phone to other people. Stick your phone in other people's faces. See if it unlocks for them. Have other people challenge your fingerprint reader gets you know develop some some a priori real world experience with how robust this is yeah i mean i don't think enough people do that no. uh you know you know nobody don't. tell no nobody asks someone else to like try guessing my password on my phone yeah. i mean that's just you know we know that's not going to happen but you know it'd be really interesting to get some actual sense for for whether you know other people whose faces will open your phone. I love this next story, uh, by the way. Oh, my God, yes. It's such a great story. So <laughs> five months after returning his rental car, the, the brief renter of the car still has full remote control. He can track the vehicle remotely, lock and unlock it and start and stop its engine. So the story is that when Masamba Sinclair rented a Ford Expedition from Enterprise last May, he was excited to connect it to, to, to connect with its Ford Pass. The Ford Pass app allows drivers to use their phones to remotely start and stop the engine, lock and unlock the doors, and track the vehicle's precise location. What could possibly go wrong? So he's 34 years old, and he told the people, I think it was ours who was doing the reporting on this, he said, I enjoyed it and logged into Ford Pass to be able to access vehicle features from my phone, such as locking and unlocking and starting the engine. I like the idea of it more than I found it useful. He says, the UI looks good and works well. So today, Sinclair's opinion of mobile apps and rental cars is decidedly less favorable. That's because five months after he returned the vehicle on May 31st, his app 
continues to have control over the car, despite multiple other people having since rented the SUV in the intervening months, Ford Pass still allows Sinclair to track the location of the vehicle, lock and unlock it, start and stop its engine. Sinclair has brought the matter to Ford's attention, both through its website and multiple times on Twitter. So far, Ford has done nothing to end his access. He said, all it took for me to initially connect was to download the app and enter the VIN, that's, you know, the VIN number on, on the engine. Then, he says, then confirming connectivity through the infotainment system. There might be a way to disassociate my phone from the car itself, he says, but that hasn't happened yet. And it's crazy to put the onus on renters to have to do that anyway. He says, I have had no problems at all and have even unlocked the doors and started the engine when I could see that the vehicle was at the Missoula Airport rental parking lot. Um, wow. So we have in the show notes three of his tweets. The first on June 4th, he, he says to at Ford, he says, I can still track and unlock the expedition that I rented last week via the Ford Pass app. Huge safety concern for all future renters. I submitted a solution via Ford New Ideas. <laughs> yeah, there's a new idea to solve this. And it was denied. This needs to be fixed, he has in all caps. And then he, uh, he posts a, 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 a pic. The next day, he tweets, It's day five since I returned my rental. And now someone else has rented it out. Do I need to start remotely unlocking it until they also start to complain? Please fix this, exclamation point. And uh, looks like a week later, June 14th. I returned this car, he's tweeting to Ford, I returned this car two weeks ago, and you've shown no willingness to allow rental companies to remove my access to unlock it and start the engine. Maybe I'll just start randomly unlocking it. Hopefully he doesn't. Hopefully, yeah, anyway, don't do that. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> Ford Pass is offered, as we know, by the Ford Motor Company and is available for both iOS and Android devices. It's one of several apps for connecting to Ford vehicles. The less than intuitive means for unpairing a vehicle and phone, not to mention the difficulty in knowing a device remains connected, represents a serious security and privacy risk, not to mention to renters, but to people buying a vehicle secondhand. Imagine you buy it, you know, from CarMax or something and don't know or particularly care that the, the previous owner still has access. Um, while Ford said infotainment screens will indicate when a device is paired, it's obvious that multiple enterprise employees and renters. Okay, this was, remember, this is, what, six months ago. Yep. Multiple enterprise employees and renters have continued to miss the warning. Even now, after the reporter of this 
discussed the problem with both Enterprise and Ford representatives, Sinclair's access still has not been revoked. Sinclair said, I've been opening the app and tracking the vehicle almost every day to see if my access is still there. And sure enough, I can see exactly where my old rental, affectionately named The Beast, he wrote, is at any given moment. This means that I can not only find this rental car whenever I want, but I can also unlock the doors and help myself to anything that might be inside. Since proximity, and this is me thinking now, since proximity to the infotainment system was required initially to complete the initial pairing, authorization, and authentication. And since occasional proximity would be expected, would be an expected characteristic for any actual car owner, it would seem to me that a useful security trade-off would be to have a device be forgotten if it hasn't been within physical proximity of the vehicle's infotainment system for, I don't know, what, a week or two? I mean, it sounds like repairing isn't that burdensome. And, Mm -hmm. you know, a car owner, they're going to be in their car every day. Or, you know, maybe they only drive it on the weekends. Okay, so make it two weeks. And after two weeks, forget the thing. Or, Or maybe... After one week, like flash a warning and say, uh, you have, you know, this device has not been near the car for the last week. Please confirm you want to keep it paired. So make it a, you know, an an affirmative statement of, of, of pairing endurance. And if you don't do that, it unpairs. I mean, it's nuts. Yeah, I'm curious about this Ford Pass thing because this actually um, reminds me of like a question I've had when I do rent a car and they have the infotainment system and I want to play my music through the Bluetooth. So that requires pairing. So then as a renter, you end up pairing to this thing and maybe you're, you know, maybe you choose not to share your contacts with the system. Uh, I usually don't do that. You know, don't share the contacts because that seems like a really bad idea. But I'm sure a lot of people just say, yeah, whatever, connect it. And then they don't think to remove it. So, I mean, and I, I guess there should be some sort of mode in these things for rental car agencies for them to, you know, on their turnaround. Because even what you're talking about, Steve, if somebody rents it the very next day, that know, still doesn't not, prevent this other third party from locking the true. door or turning off the vehicle true. at the wrong time or whatever. It's a liability. Uh, there needs true. to be some easy way for them to be able to deactivate that if that doesn't exist already. Maybe it does and they're just not using it. Well, or uh, in, in, in the rental mode, it would be reasonable to turn down the, the forget the device delay to one day. Right. Because, uh, you know, a, a, anyone who's renting a car is in it like, you know, yep. a lot. Yep. So and if not, oh, oh, boo hoo. If you're if your device. I mean, besides who wants to unlock their doors remotely? I mean, OK, maybe <laughs> who wants to start the engine remotely? Uh Maybe okay. It's cold outside. I, mean, I can understand that the, one, maybe. These are all like gee whiz doohickey, you know. Yeah. I, I have it Not because the, because I'm on the internet, you know. Right. My car is an IoT. Well, we already know what a bad idea that is. As you can see on Security Now, Steve covers everything from security breaches, hacks, things to watch out for, 
to, of course, privacy. And uh, th we plan to do all of that again in 2020. Steve has a great agenda of things to cover. You'll get the latest news about security. And Steve will also explain a lot of technologies that, frankly, for most of us are kind of mysterious. That's what Steve's so great at. We'll be back next week. I hope you will, too. And we thank you so much for letting us be a part of your listening all year long. I'm Leo Laporte on behalf of Steve Gibson. Happy New Year, and we'll see you in 2020. Security now.